0: Uh, I want you to open your Bibles, if you have them, to Mark. We have been in a series for a while now. Uh, We are in Mark 11, verse 27 today. And uh, like Athena said, we'll be coming to a close. We've got three weeks left this week and two weeks after this to uh, finish up Mark. And so I hope that this has been a good series for you. It's certainly been great for me. I. I get to, in some ways, get the best of the best because I get to just marinate in it all week long. I hope that you do that, by the way. I think you can usually tell where I'm going to be next because it's where I left off last week. So I encourage you to get into the text and study it and pray through it and come prepared even with what God's already put on your heart and then to see what maybe He put on my heart. And a lot of times we'll find that. Those things will line up because the same Spirit that inspired the Word is the Spirit that illuminates the Word to our hearts. So I hope that you did that and are in the Word. If you're not in Mark but another place, please just be spending time in the Word of God on a daily basis. It's, it's necessary for your own spiritual growth and development. So we're in verse 27. And... Uh, as you've already heard Donald say, we're going to be talking about authority today. And in, in, an, in a day and age where we see radical narcissism, we see incredible individualism, we have almost a skepticism of any kind of authority, uh, we need to hear this message today. We really need to understand authority is not evil. There has been evil authority, but God certainly isn't evil. God is good, and we need his authority in our life. But in a culture that is so radically opposed, in some cases, to authority, uh, even a message like this speaks to all of us. Because we don't know how often, I don't know if you guys pay attention, but how often you're being told through media, through through uh, your daily commute, through uh, time at work, wherever it may be, that authority is just a necessary evil instead of a, a God given gift. And so I, 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 wanna, I want us to look at this text asking the question who is the boss of you? Okay, I don't know if you guys uh, have, have you, how many parents in the room? What, a few? Do you ever stumble upon your, your kids? You may be the older child taking a mothering kind of approach to the, or a fathering approach to the younger siblings, and the younger siblings responding back, you're not the boss of me. You ever heard that? I've stumbled on that many times with my kids. I mean, it's even happened when we actually did ask Haley to be the boss, and her siblings have said, no, you're not the boss of me, and we we have to step in and say, no, actually, she is, because we gave her the authority to be that. I remember one time uh, I was talking to Maggie about something that needed to change in her behavior. And she said to me, Dad, you're not the boss of me. To which I said, "Um, yes, I am. I'm your father. And she said, no, God is the boss of me. Which is theologically correct. And uh, so there was a part of me that really wanted to affirm, you've got it right. And yet, he's given you his parents, he's given you your parents to represent his authority in your life. And in the text that we're gonna look at, we're gonna see Jesus being challenged as the representative authority of God on the earth by the religious leaders who don't really want to have anybody be the boss of them. And so the question I do want you to ask of yourself is, where in my life am I saying, you're not the boss of me? Where in my life am I saying, no, that's mine. No one gets to tell me what to do in that thing or in that area. And that's the question that the religious leaders are going to pose to Jesus. Let's look at verse 27 together. We're going to read a section together to the end of the chapter, and then we'll take a break, and then we're going to read the first part of chapter 12 together. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priest and the scribes and the elders came to him. Those Three groups of people are called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin operated like a buffer between the Jewish nation and Rome. And uh, they had basically complete freedom in regards to religious authority over, over the people of Israel, over the, the Jewish people, um, but limited freedom, still quite a bit of power and authority, but still limited and restricted power when it came to Rome in terms of political matters. So you're talking about the group of people who really do have the most authority in, in, uh, in Jerusalem, apart from Rome. So of the Jewish people, these were, in a sense, the governing authorities who had both religious authority as well as a restricted but still powerful political authority. And Jesus, or they say to Jesus as they come to him, by what authority are you doing these things or who gave you this authority to do them? And specifically, they're referring to what Jesus just did in the temple, Remember, he came into the temple courts last week. We talked about this and began to clear them out because that was the place where the Gentiles were supposed to have freedom to come and pray and seek God and find God. And the temple was in the center of that area. And Jesus came in and confronted the religious leaders and all the people who were making a mess of the, the te- temple courts, in particular the, the court of the Gentiles, the place in which the nations were sp- supposed to be drawn to God, not pushed away. And so he, 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 they're, they're asking, what authority do you do these things? In particular, what he just did to the temple. But it also is in more general uh, sense, uh, the way he's been preaching with such authority, the way he's been challenging the religious status quo, the, the way in which he's been casting out demons and bringing healing to people. All of those things would fall under, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus says to them, I will ask you one question. Now, by the way, this this act that Jesus is going to engage in, this activity, is really a common uh, rabbinical practice, which is when someone asks you a question, you respond with a question. Uh, have you ever done that, by the way, when someone just talks to you and they, they challenge you and you just keep asking questions? It's frustrating, isn't it? Because like, I want to just know what you think. I want to know where you stand. I want to be able to corner you at some point. And what's going on, by the way, in this particular question that the religious leaders are asking Jesus, by what authority do you do, do these things? The answer to the question has serious implications. Because in that day and age, if you stood especially on religious ground, and spoke a word that you were either confronting a religious leader, confronting a religious system, or confronting the nation of Israel, if you were to stand on authority that is false authority, if you were to say that you have the authority to speak against something, but that authority is found to be false, it was grounds for capital punishment. You were, you were going to be killed for that kind of statement. To stand with the kind of authority that God would give you when you don't really have it, is grounds for being killed in their context. So Jesus is being questioned by what authority are you doing these things? Because as we know, not only do the religious leaders uh, want to get rid of Jesus because he's challenging their authority everywhere he goes. Have you ever met someone, by the way, who, who has unchallenged authority? has a kind of a, a dictatorial kind of rule and and whenever they're challenged you're, they're threatened by it because they know to lose that authority to lose that power in a sense is to lose their entire identity maybe that's you maybe you're you're in a place today where you're saying like my identity is in who i get to tell what to do my identity is in who submits to me my identity is in power it's in authority some of you in the room are parents and Whenever your kids challenge that authority, it's hard not to just lose your temper, right? I mean, I don't know if you are that way, but there were days for me in those like two to five year zone. Those two two to five years uh, with my kids where they would regularly challenge my authority, challenge Janie's authority. And I don't know if you kind of realize what's going on there when they were one to two that you thought they were innocent. But what was really going on is they just weren't that smart yet right? They didn't realize that you responded to every beck and call. When when their pants were filled, you changed their diaper. When they started to scream in the middle of the night, you got up. You woke up. Like they were stronger than an alarm for you. Like you could just turn the alarm off, but you can't turn the scream off. And so you, you run, you know, to the bedroom and try to figure what's going on. And of course you feed them, and then they go back to sleep, and they do it again two more hours later. And this continues and start. Uh, they don't realize it when they're little, but when they hit two, they're like, Wait a minute. Every time I yell, every time I scream, every time I fight back, they come running and do what I want. This is amazing. Unlimited power, right? So now they're not quite thinking about it quite that intricately, but they have figured it out. And if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about because there are moments when you finally go like, "Enough." Like I'm not at your beck and call for everything you want, especially when it's things that are wrong. That are gonna hurt you. And so you see this early on as parents, and what happens when they threaten that authority? I've talked to some parents who've actually contemplated murder, okay? You know, like there's a moment where they're like, I don't know if it's good to have you around anymore, right? And and of course, they're confessing that and saying, I can't believe the terrible thoughts I had. No one's ever confessed to murder. Um, But there are those moments when you're like, you know, I've heard of parents who spank their kids in ways that are with anger. Or have responded in ways that that have really been abusive in their the way in their tone uh, to their little to their little children who you know have figured it out and and the reason why is because when our authority is our identity when our sense of control is our sense of of, of significance then when that's threatened we respond in very broken ways all of us do and and, and the religious leaders are an, an, the epitome. Of this, because Jesus is threatening their order, their control, their sense of identity and significance. And so they want to have him killed. So Jesus doesn't enter into a debate. See, oftentimes that's what happens, right? When, when our th- is threatened and someone then challenges us, we, we have two people whose authority is being threatened, and we want to be right at the end of the day. Have you ever been with somebody who, who continues to argue until they finally have the last word? And you, but if you're arguing with someone who wants to always have the last word, the argument never ends, and it just escalates. And Jesus here is going to have the last word, but in a way that is very different than most of us. He's going to ask a question because he wants to reveal in their hearts what's actually going on. So he asked them a question. I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Love it. Here's the question. Answer me. And they discussed it with each other, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him, John, but But then, if we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. I love it when I'm with my kids and I kind of confront them on something. They're like, I don't know. Like, who did it? I don't know. And that they're kind of cornered right now. These guys know that they're in trouble if they answer the question one way or the other. They don't have a good answer. And Jesus says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, that last phrase there, I'm gonna come back to the section I just went through, but that last phrase is really important because I have met a lot of people who will push against the things of Jesus, will push against the, the truths of God's word, and, and they will continue to stand in a skeptic position, in a, a place of opposition to God and his word, and Jesus Christ, and yet if I ask them, would you be willing to submit to God speaking in your life? Would you be willing to submit to God being God over your life? And the answer is no, and that's why they can't hear. Maybe there's some of you here in this room where Jesus is going, I'm not going to tell you truth when you don't want it. When fundamentally you've already set in your heart a desire to oppose it versus a, a desire to submit to it. So I would even say to you, if you're in the room and you're saying, I primarily come at the things of God, the things of God's word from a skeptic point of view, then I'm going to tell you, likely you'll never be able to hear from God because you've already determined that you don't want to trust him, that you don't want to submit to him, that you don't want his word to speak into your heart. And my hope is that that might change. And if you're, if you're here, please keep coming. Keep, keep hearing God's word because my desire is that you would begin to have these lies that you believed about what God's like start to unravel. And you'd start to see that you bought into a lie from the world or from your upbringing that's given you an opinion of God that's just not true. You can trust God. You, you, you need God. You need to listen to God. You need to submit to God's word. It's good for you. It is life for you. So I I want to say that before I move on and explain what's going on here. This question, was John's baptism from heaven, is another way of asking, was it from God? Jews were uh, prone to not say the the divine name out of reverence. So uh, saying, was it from heaven, was another way of saying, was it from God? So Jesus is speaking into their culture and in reverence, and, and understanding that by saying heaven, they would all get it, that it's, is it from God or is it from man? He's, he's simplifying. And I love, I love this about Jesus. A lot of times what he does, he just brings it right down to the real issue. Who's your boss? God or man? That's the question. Who's the ultimate boss in your life? And he knows that this question has huge implications for the Sanhedrin. First of all, if they affirm that John's baptism is from God, then they are affirming that Jesus is from God. That, that's really what they have to assume because they know at his baptism, as it's been told, that the Father, God, said, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And so to affirm John's baptism, and, and then, therefore, God's word spoken over Jesus at his baptism is to affirm that God sent Jesus as his messenger, as the Son of God, to whom they must submit to. And so that, they, that's one thing. Second, they know that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for Israel. In other words, when they had entered into the Jordan, Many, many years prior to enter into the promised land, they they entered in, and you you might remember the the, the priests go ahead, they bring the Ark of the Covenant as they go into the water, the water stops up, it becomes dry land, they cross it, they put 12 big stones there at the edge of the river to remind them that God opened the way for them to come into the promised land to enjoy rest with God, to, to walk in God's ways and obey His commands. And if you know the story, you know that they did not do that, they didn't rest, and they didn't. Didn't obey. They didn't trust God, and they didn't obey God. And so for, for John's baptism, people would know he did it in the Jordan to remind them that they were supposed to have entered a certain way into the promised land, trusting God, submitting to God, and yet they didn't. And so his baptism was a way of re-entering into that promised hope of rest when we live our lives trusting and believing God, submitting to his authority. Now here's the interesting thing. The religious leaders weren't getting baptized by John. So in a sense, they were saying, we don't need to repent. We're not broken. We have it all together. You don't get to confront us in the way we're living because we're the example of what you should be like. And when Jesus says, would you affirm that John's baptism is from God, not only is he saying, would you affirm that I'm from God, but are you, would you also affirm that you needed to get baptized? that you needed to get into the water, that you needed to repent, that you needed to turn from your wicked ways. So to affirm that has huge implications for the religious leaders. There's a third part of this in terms of the implications that come about if, if, he, if they affirm it. And that is, they, they know as soon as they, they say yes to John's baptism, they are in, a, in effect saying yes to the prophet Malachi's prophecy about Jesus. If you if you have in your Bibles, if you want to turn your Bibles to, to Malachi, just go back to the left a little bit. I'm going to look at Malachi chapter 3 with you. They know that what what's going on is there is a prophecy being fulfilled. Remember at the beginning of Mark When we looked at chapter 1, verse 2, when Mark kicks off his gospel, he says this about John the Baptist. He says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. He's actually quoting Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, which says this. We're going to read four verses. Behold, I send my messenger, this is John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. That was last week's text. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? The answer is no one. That's a rhetorical question. So when, if you affirm John's baptism, you affirm John as the, the messenger preparing the way for this Lord to come of which no one can stand up to. That's the point. No one gets to stand up to this Lord because he will reveal that all of you are in trouble. Listen to what he says. For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. In other words, he's come to to clean you up. You're You're all dirty, you're all broken, you're all sinful. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify who? The sons of Levi. These are the guys he's talking to. The sons of the priest. That's who the sons of Levi are, the people in charge of the religious practices in the temple. And refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Do you hear what? what if Jesus, Jesus is saying, do you affirm John? If you affirm John, then you affirm that John's the messenger, the preparer of the, of the messenger, And therefore, I am the one who this prophecy is speaking about. And since I'm here challenging you, you're the ones that are in trouble. Do you see what's going on? So they they answer yes. There's a whole bunch of dominoes that start to fall for the religious leaders. Therefore, to affirm it is to affirm that they need repentance, they need forgiveness, they need Jesus. But then, on the other side of it, now, by the way, let me, let me stop here a sec. Because it's hard, I, but let's just be honest. It's hard to admit you're wrong, right? You're right in those situations where, like, you're, you're actually defending yourself, but internally you're like, I know I'm wrong here, but I just don't want to admit it. You ever been in that situation? I've been in that situation way too many times. <laughs> and my wife, thank God, I'm so thankful to, to God for her, is it, not a pushover. My wife is a very strong woman, and my wife cares more about my sanctification sometimes than I do. And so I'm grateful that God put a very strong woman in my life who will not let me continue in paths of sin. And I don't know about you, but I got lots of blind spots. And I I need someone who will love me enough to talk to me about them. I have a church family. I I want that from you. I don't want to be the guy up here where people are going, man, someone should talk to him about that except for my wardrobe, okay? Like, if you want to talk me about that, just buy me clothes. That, that's like I talked about last week. So, uh, But I, I don't want to be the guy who no one will talk to. And so my, my wife, Janie, thankfully, she's not afraid to do that. But there are moments when I, I know, like in the middle of the discussion, in the middle of, you know, we, we call the a discussion, our kids call it an argument as they listen, but we just say we're just discussing with a lot of energy. Uh, in the middle of those moments, there's that, there's that moment of light, You ever had those? And you're like, I know she's right. But I don't want to admit it. I don't want to own up to my brokenness. I don't want to own up to the fact that there's an area of my life where I have not submitted to God's authority. Because any place in my life that's broken, any place in my life that doesn't look like Jesus, is an area where I've submitted to another boss, other than God himself. And yet, thankfully, God fights for my heart, oftentimes through my wife. And I get there. And the reason why I say that is because I want to have some grace for these religious leaders. We can sit in condemnation on them and judgment and say, man, these guys are idiots. What's wrong with them? They got Jesus right in front of them. And yet, you do too. In so many places in your life, you have Jesus crying out to you, submit. There's things in your life that you are not submitting submitting to me in. There's there's areas of your life where you're saying, who's the boss of me? You're not the boss of me. This is my thing. And, and God wants to bring maybe me into your life today from this message or a friend or a brother or a sister or a relative, uh, uh, maybe your spouse, maybe your children, and confront you. And, and I want to ask, when people confront you, what do you do? How do you respond when people confront you with your brokenness, with your sin, with areas of weakness, with blind spots that you can't see? So I, I want to have some grace on the leaders because their entire identity is built on this. Now, it's not okay. It doesn't justify it. We can all look at it and see how wrong it is, but let's make sure that we turn the, the camera on us and let it examine us. Now, on the other hand, if they were to affirm that John's baptism is from man, then they would actually lose their following because as you heard them say, we know that everybody thinks pretty well of John, and if we discount the very ministry of John, then we're going to lose all these people. We're gonna, we're gonna lose their approval. Our approval ratings are gonna drop. And so their, their fear of we well, don't wanna submit to God and if, this, if he's from God, then we have to change. But if we say John is from man, then we lose the approval of man. Now, Let me ask you, how many places in your life are you living for the approval of man, that primarily the motivation of your heart, the reason why you make decisions is because of what you think people will do if you make a certain decision? A lot of times, when I'm counseling people on how to make a good decision, what I have to do is take away the response or reaction of people, so that that doesn't become the influencer of their decision. And I'll often say, "Let's just imagine if you made the decision that was the right decision, and everybody around you responded in a in a very perfect, godlike manner. What decision would you make?" And that that helps to isolate for a lot of people how much the approval of man has shaped their decision-making, how much the approval of man has been the primary thing that kind of comes into their mind when they think about, I'm about to do this, but what will they think? What will they do? And I'm sure everyone in the room has had those moments where you're like, I know I made a decision because of what people would do if I didn't make it. Or when I made the decision, I was primarily thinking about how can I get people to be impressed with me? And so I think it's important to take that out of the equation and say, what would be the decision I would make? Because that's a way of saying, I want to submit to God in this decision. I want God to be the boss of this decision, not people's reaction or approval rating. And all of us struggle with this. In fact, if I could just give you that, if you walked out here today, one good thing. I'd say, take every decision you make as much as you possibly can and say, God, if I were to make this decision for you, Based upon what you've taught me, based upon what your word says to me, based upon you you being glorified, based upon you being worshiped in this moment, what decision would I make barring the response of other people? Putting that aside. Now, wisdom says you pay attention to the response, but it doesn't control your decision. You say, they might respond in this way or this way or this way. How can I lovingly do this in light of how it might affect people or how they might reject me as a result? How do I walk through it with wisdom? But I don't let the approval of man become my controlling factor in decision making. Because if that's the case, then who's the boss? Others. Now, yeah, we all have bosses in this world we have to submit to. I'll come back to that in a bit. But I don't want the ultimate boss of my life, the ultimate controlling authority in my life to be anyone other than the perfect boss of the universe, which is Jesus Christ. That's who I want to submit to. So they're stuck, God or man. You ever felt stuck like that? I mean, I'm sure you have. If you've lived long enough, you feel stuck. Which one do I do? Which direction do I go? Which decision do I make? So they just remain silent. They're paralyzed. And for some of us, we're paralyzed to make good decisions because we haven't taken the time to ask, who's the boss of this decision? Who's the boss of me? If you stop and take some time to say, God, who's the boss of me right now? It'll start to get clearer, especially if you invite the Holy Spirit to come in and say, show me who has been the the most powerful influence in my life in this area. See, Jesus came to set you free. He came to to, to enable you to live a new life where you're not enslaved by the approval of man. You're not enslaved by primarily just your own whims and desires. He wants to set you free to live a new life. So then Jesus, since they won't give an answer, he responds with a parable. Let's look at this parable together in chapter 12. Now remember, parables for Jesus, especially in Mark's gospel, were not a way of making truth easier to understand. Okay, the reason why Jesus gave parables was he he would give a parable to people who didn't want to understand as an indictment against them. That was the reason why Jesus uses parables in the Gospel of Mark. So keep that in mind. It's not like, oh, he's breaking it down and making it easier to understand. No, it's an indictment against their hearts. He's giving it, remember, if we back up in Mark, uh, those who have ears to hear but never hear, those are the ones who get a, a parable. So here's the parable. He began to speak to them, in parables, a man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. How many of you guys heard that parable before? Familiar with it? Uh, the, the background of this parable is Isaiah 5, uh, f- particular verses 1 through 2. That, that refers to this vineyard that God plants. And in it, the, the listeners, if they were aware of the scriptures, when they hear uh, the tower and the winepress, they would, they would understand that those were figures of the temple and the altar. The tower and the winepress were meant to, to bring them back to the idea of the temple and the altar. And the vineyard represents God's people and their works. Deuteronomy 32, 9 says that the Lord's portion is his people. So they, they would know that, that this is referring to God's temple, God's altar, God's people. And then the tenants in this particular narrative are, it's obvious, right? Those are the religious leaders. The servants are the prophets that God had sent to warn his people previously to call them to repent. And if you pay attention, there's a progressive uh, kind of violence going on here. The first one, they they don't treat well, but by the time you get to the end, the last one is struck on the head and killed, which is a clear reference to John the Baptist. Remember, who loses his head as the prophet who prepares the way of the Lord. So, and who's, who's the beloved son? We all know the answer, right? It's Jesus. Okay? So the, 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 the beloved son, the one who is the one and only begotten of the Father, sent as the final word to God's people of his salvation, come to rescue them from their sins, is Jesus. And Jesus is the rightful heir. And the religious leaders know that to admit that he's the son of God means that he has rights over them. Therefore, to reject him is to reject the very son of God. Now, they don't believe he's the son of God, but they do believe if they can get rid of him, they can take back their rights over the temple because he's threatening everything that they have. They want to have ownership. They want ultimate authority. They want to be boss. Let me just ask you, just do a heart check here. Where are you wanting ultimate authority? Where do you want to be boss? Are you saying I know some people who've gone into self-employment, starting their own companies, which is not bad. I grew up with a father who had his own businesses, but if the motive is so I don't have to report to anyone, you're in trouble. Because you have governing authorities around you. And I've met some people who've gone into business on their own so that they can have their way and they get in a lot of trouble or they just live with a lot of criminal activity under the ground because they just don't want to submit to anybody. And I don't care whether whether it's in business or if it's in parenting. All of us struggle with wanting to be the ultimate authority at the end of the day. I I remember when when we first got married and Janie is incredibly Neat person, so we, we had white carpet in our first house, and and I mean, it was immaculate, and I was a youth pastor. <laughs> you just put those two together, lots of fun, right? And uh, I, I remember we, we would leave when we'd go out for the night, just a date night, she would vacuum her, us out of the house, and I, I would like, "Oh, I forgot some." She was "No, no, no, no footprints and i don 't know what it was it was perfect pattern she had built into her vacuuming. And, and I would go, when we'd come back to the house, there would be no footprints on the carpeting, but the vacuum was miraculously put away, which I have no idea how she pulled that off. I don't know if she levitated or what, but like it was immaculate. And I remember w- one time as kind of a little joke, we went away for a vacation, someone somehow got keys to our house and we came back and all the picture frames were off just a little bit. You know, some were upside down, like pillows were just, you know, messed I mean, everything was just a little off. And she came in and she almost melted down. Like, what? And it was all the youth group kids because they knew, like, okay, let's have fun with Janie. I'm like, don't you ever do that. That leads to murder. Like, uh, she might kill you. Don't do that. And and, and Janie has grown a ton because when you have kids, you realize you can't keep a house like that. When you open up your home to, to people to be entertaining with hospitality, at some point things get messed up. And so we've had to let go, and, and I'm, just so, you, so I'm not just going after Janie, I'm like this too. I like things to be ordered. I like things to be neat. I remember when I, first bought, when I bought my first really nice Toyota Tundra truck, and I let a group of people use it, and it came back with a scratch. I was about ready to never let anybody use it again. And the Lord said, whose truck is that? Who's the boss of your truck, Jeff? And I had to answer, you are. And I, I, I don't know how you are, but like, if you want to have ultimate authority over something, you won't let things go. You won't open up your home. You won't open up your life. You won't let somebody mess something up. I'm not saying we should just let everybody mess up our lives. I'm just saying pay attention to why you want ultimate authority and control in your life. What are you ultimately saying about who is God, who is the boss? See, why do people, why do people fight to believe there's no God? Why why do people do everything they can to get rid of the idea of God? Why why do people want to kill God? Because they want to be God. Ultimately, they want to be God. Now, let's just be fair. Why do some people go into talking on behalf of God in ways that are abusive or, or power mongering? Because they want to be God and use God to prop them up as God. So it goes both ways. I just want to make sure we're clear on this. If if we are not willing to say God's the boss, not me, then we're all going to be leading like we are God in someone else's life. Who do you want to be God of your life? That's the question. Who do you want to be boss of your life? Now, this, this parable is a picture of stewardship, and it has huge implications for us today. Now, I know you might say, well, we're not the Jewish leaders. This is particularly talking about how they stewarded God's people and the temple and the religious practices, and it is. It really is. But we need to walk away from it and say, what do you have to say to us, God? Like last week, as I clarified, we are now the temple of the living God. We, we carry around with us the very presence of Christ through his spirit, those of you who have come to faith in Jesus. And those who haven't yet, God wants your body to be his temple. He didn't give you your body just so you could do whatever you want with it. He gave it so that you could honor him with it. You would glorify him with it. He wants to dwell in you, and he wants to be glorified through you. That's the reason why he's given you the body you have. That's the reason why he's given you the time that you have, the talents that you have, the treasures that you have. He's called you to be a steward of his vineyard, a steward of his temple. And I have to ask, as I I think about this question, who's the boss of me, Jeff, God or man? If I'm really honest, if I think about the vineyard of God's work in my life, if I think about the temple that I am for God, I fluctuate between God and man. I fluctuate. I, I don't always worship and serve him. I don't always steward my time, tra- talents and treasures well for him. I mean, I, I don't know how it is for you, but when I go on vacation, like I am the boss of my vacation, right? I mean, in, in ways that aren't good. I mean, there, I've been confronted in this over the few years that we've taken family vacations where, I mean, I go away and I'm like, I want a book, I want a nice, comfy chair next to a pool or an ocean with lots of people coming up and asking me what drink I want next, right? Like, that's, that's what I want, and I don't want my kids bothering me, if I'm real honest, right? Like, and, and I'm, I'm repenting of this in front of you, and I've done it many times to my family, where it's like, man, I just want to be about me for a week. I'm tired. And, and you know what? Every time I'm about me for a week, I get to the end of the week, I'm more, I'm more tired, because I, when you try to be boss of your life, it's a tiring activity because you've got you to try and control everything. But when you say, God, be the boss of my life, be the boss of my vacation, be the boss of how I, fa- I parent my kids, be the boss of my time. And every single time that I say, I say, you want, I you want you to be the boss of this moment, it's like I get life given to me for others. Yesterday, I was working on my rental house, which I was painting all day. And just so you know, I'd love to have all you show up and help if you want. Um, but there was a, a, just kidding. Well, I'm kind of not kidding. But um, <laughs> there was a single guy with me. And, and you know, we were talking a little bit. He was, was a great gift to me because he actually knows how to paint. So that's helpful. Um, and I, I was teaching others who don't know how to paint yet. But that, and that was fine too. But he was one that was really quick. And, and uh, at one point, we, I was talking to him because we were alone. No one everyone else had left, and, I said, you know, like, tell me a little bit more, like, how you're doing. I was getting into his life a little bit, and he shared with me. He said, you know what I'm finding is that, uh, he said, I'm glad to be here because I'm single, and I've got time. And I'm not saying that single people have more time than everybody else, but this is what he said, okay? He said, I've got the time to give. And he said, you know, and a lot of my single friends, a day like this, a nice sunny day, they're probably out on the boat or they're somewhere else. He goes, I just feel like if I live my whole life just for me, at the end of the day, it's not fulfilling. It's not life-giving. He said, Here I get to, he said, I didn't even want to come do this, just so you know, Jeff. I didn't want to serve you today. And I'm like, well, you're not serving me. You're ser- serving Jesus. Whenever we serve others, we do it as unto him. He goes, that's what I want to say. It's like, really, this was life-giving to me because I realize I'm putting to death that desire to be in control, to be the boss. And f- for all of us, we, we deal with this. I, I deal with it on vacation. Some of you deal with this at work. Let me ask you, who's your boss at work? You go, well, that's obvious, my boss. No, is Jesus your boss? Because I'll tell you what, when you know the God of the universe is your true boss, then you go work for your boss in a different way. You don't work for them so that they'll give you a better pay or better accolades or a better position. You work for them because God's already given you better pay and better accolades and a better position in Jesus Christ. And you're free to serve them. You're free to work to the best of your ability. You're, you can be the best worker in our city because you don't need anything from anyone else to give you a reason to work because you've already received it through Jesus Christ who worked to the end of his life dying for you. That's enough motivation. And when he's your boss, you work for your earthly boss differently. Maybe, maybe your, your schedule, who's the boss of your schedule? How, do, you, do you sit at the beginning of your week and go, God, help me to order my life Well, Show me how I should spend my time in a way that would steward what is yours because my time is your time. And just like the, the owner of the vineyard had to come and confront his servants because they were not stewarding the vineyard on his behalf in the way he wanted, maybe God is coming to you today and saying, you're not stewarding your time in a way that honors me. Who's the boss of your schedule? Who's the boss of your free time? Who's the boss of your budget? When's the last time you sat down and said, God, order my budget. Order our giving order our spending. It's yours. Just to be clear, 10% of your money is not God's. 100% of it is his. Your job is to then steward it on his behalf the way he wants it to be spent. What about your relationships? When's the last time you you sat down, husbands or wives, those of you who are married, and said, God, I just want you to show me how I can better steward my affection, my time for my spouse? Those of you who are not married, but you want to be, how, uh, Lord, show me how to steward my life in a way that doesn't just quickly give myself away to anybody that comes along, but I want to I shepherd my heart. I want you to shepherd. I want you to be the Lord of it so that, that, that I'm not just looking for affection or, or love in a place that's quick and oftentimes empty, but really you. I want it to be from you that I find love and affection so when I get that kind of love and affection, it becomes godly and right and pure. Who, who, who's Who's the boss? of your time? Who's the boss of your relationships? Who's the boss of your resources? Who's the boss parents of your household? At the end of the day, do you pray over your kids every night? Do you say, God help me? I don't know how to steward. I mean, I've never met a parent who is good at parenting. It's the parents who've already parented that are usually good at parenting, right? It's the ones that have already their kids out of the home. They're like, okay, I got a lot to learn now, or to t- teach now. If you're new and parenting and you don't know what you're doing, Welcome to every single person that's ever lived on the planet. Right? You don't, you, how can you know how to do something you've never done before? You're going to repeat the mistakes of your, parent, previous, of your own parents, or you're going to try to avoid making the mistakes of your parents and go too far. Either way, you need someone to be a better parent over you than you. You need a, a better parent for your kids than you. And here's the deal. We've all failed, haven't we? I mean, let's just be honest. We all have lived saying... You're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of my schedule. You're not the boss of my money. You're not the boss of my relationships. You're not the boss of work. And if we're real honest, we've all done that to God. Maybe not using those words, but our actions have shown that to be true. And that's why I, I, love, I love what Jesus does here. Now, before I get to the good news, there's some really harsh news. What, is, what happens when you fail to steward what God has, what God owns. I mean, these are harsh words. It says, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. In other words, he's going to get rid of the present tenants who are supposed to be stewarding what he has. He's going to give what he has to another person or another group of people. Now, he is speaking prophetically at this point, just to be clear. History tells us that in AD 70, the temple is destroyed. Now, this particular gospel of Mark is written in the kind of 50s and 60s. So it's not very long until they're going to see the temple destroyed. So this particular gospel is preparing them for what's about to happen. You know, they're, in their minds, you can imagine 10, 15 years later, they're reading this going, oh my goodness. What, what Jesus said, what Mark recorded, what we read actually happened. God destroyed as it were the temple, the, the tower, the wine press. It's gone. Why? Because Jesus is the ultimate temple. We talked about that last week. It's not as though God doesn't care about a temple. It's just that the earthly temple is not the ultimate temple. Jesus is the ultimate temple. And so the the temple gets destroyed and it gets given to Gentiles. In other words, the temple of God is Jesus. He's given to the world, not just to the Jews, so that all of us get to be the temple of God. And as they're reading this, they're getting prepared to be God's temple spread throughout the entire world. Because out of Rome comes us. You want to follow the trajectory. Eventually, we get this message here in this place. And so this is prophetic, but I think it's also not just prophetic in its foretelling, but it's prophetic in its, in its cutting to the heart for all of us. and the, In a word that we need to hear, that God takes very seriously what you and I do with what he's given us. Very seriously. So maybe today you're going, oh, God, I don't, I don't want to be the one who you stand against. I don't be the one, I want to be the one who you remove resources because I want to steward them for you. They're yours. But I don't want to leave you there because let's look at verse 10 again. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's quoting Psalm one. 18, 22 through, through 23, and he's referencing a particular stone that was rejected from the building of T- Solomon's temple that eventually became the keystone, which was the, the stone over the arch. It became the head of the entire thing. What, what was originally rejected became the picture of authority over the whole thing. And what's beautiful is Jesus is the one whom the builders, which are the, the Torah readers, the scribes, the Pharisees, people that we're talking about, they rejected the stone, Jesus. And that stone has become the cornerstone and the keystone. The cornerstone is the the stone that's laid uh, uh, down at the bottom of the foundation, which everything else finds its uh, its, kind of order. And the keystone is the head of it, which reminds us who the authority is. And Jesus is both the cornerstone and the keystone. And how does he become the cornerstone of this new temple, this cornerstone of the kingdom of God breaking in the world, and the keystone, the head of it all? How does he become that? By being rejected. By having his authority not submitted to. Why? Because he is rejected so that we might be accepted. He is rejected and killed for our sins. And at the cross, the one who is really the true cornerstone, the true keystone, is the one who the leaders, the religious leaders, rejected. And it's through his rejection that you and I are accepted. It's through his rejection that he goes to the cross and dies for all the ways in which we said, you're not the boss of me. That's what's really amazing about this. And it says, and isn't he marvelous in our eyes? I mean, if you're sitting here today going, I have vacillated between God as my boss and man as my boss or self as my boss. If, if there's areas of your life you're going, I've been saying, you're not the boss of me. I want you to know, if you know that Jesus died for that, if you know that Jesus shed his blood for all the ways in which you've said, God, you're not the boss of me in your life. If you know that he did that, then you're not, not only is he the cornerstone of your faith and the capstone or the headstone of, of, your, of the authority over your life, but he's also the very means by which you can get accepted even though you keep rejecting him over and over and over again. I mean, the gospel is incredible news for people like us. Now, if you aren't willing to admit that, then it's not precious. It's not marvelous. You're like the religious leaders. You go, you're crowding my space. This is religion. I want nothing to do with it. But I'll tell you what. I vacillate so often. In this last week, I vacillated so often that I come to today going, if I don't have him, if I don't have him as the cornerstone of my life and the keystone of my, my the authority over me, I got nothing. I'm hopeless. Because the, the tenet, or the the, the owner of the vineyard is going to come against me. And that's speaking of a future reality that those of us who have rejected Jesus will stand before God one day on our own merits before a holy, pure, righteous God. And I'm telling you, no one will stand. Who can stand? Nobody. So you'd be better off getting on your knees and submitting to the one who's the rightful authority over all things, saying, Jesus, my life is yours. Be the boss of me, be the boss of my life, be the boss of my schedule, be the boss of my relationships, be the boss of everything. And when I fail to make you the boss, be the cornerstone and the headstone, the one who was rejected so that I might be forgiven. I think we need both today. Thanks for joining us for the unexpected Jesus series as we walk through the book of Mark at Doxa Church. Doxa Church exists to equip people to live for Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. For more information, go to doxa-church.com.